last look at me for three and a half months, you lucky things. You've noticed the pink shirt? I'm just getting you used to Duffy. Kate read the Old Testament uh, so that she could be sure that her kids would go well. She's probably out serving someone, Kate. What I want you to know this morning is if you listen to the sermon, you'll just see how well they're actually going to go if they read the Old Testament. For those of us that were here last week, um, for old guys like me and younger guys like Kieran and younger women like Barb, uh, to have um, Peter Adam with us was, was a great joy, you know, I mean... Pete's never been super charismatic, but boy, I tell you what, if ever you wanted a four-wheel drive, diff-locked, grunting vehicle, you know, that's who Peter has been for so many uh, leaders. You know, he was saying that he started praying for people who would um, go into ministry out of St Jude's Church in Carlton that he led, and he said, I prayed for 50 people. He said, I've been ordained 50 years this year, and he said, we've just ticked over 100 people, you know, men and women that have gone in to serve God full-time in their lives. Um, That's the sort of grunt that uh, Peter's got. Um, And, you know, as I thought, I asked him, you know, he's probably one of many people that that have influenced me, but as I go on sabbatical, you know, I've tracked down about 10 or a dozen people who've really made a difference to me. And I think uh, as you look at your life, it might not seem to add up to much, but can I encourage you with however much of it's left to invest in people who are worth investing in to see how they will go forward and make a difference uh, in life uh, for other people. And I'm looking around this room and it's pretty interesting to see both investors and people who today, their full-time jobs are investing in the lives of people, uh, in the lives of communities, and we see those communities growing as a result of that. But something Peter said to us Um, as a group of uh, not necessarily ordained people, just Christian leaders throughout last week. We we went to a couple of things where he was speaking. Frames the final talk for today. Um, He was just ruminating on, yeah, the world is the world. It's a bit of a mess. It's always been a bit of a mess, really, but we seem to feel it's more of a mess now than it's ever been. And he was uh, just pondering about how the mess is no respecter of people. You know, it's, it's a mess for the rich, the poor, black, white, blue, brindle. You know, it doesn't really matter. The world is a, is a place that just uh, unfolds a pathway that you try and be in control of. Like, you know, that's why you read the Bible, the Old Testament, isn't it? So your kids will go well. Um, But, you know, good luck with that. That's probably really more a kind of a weird mysticism than actually a a true godly revelation. Um, But the world is a a tricky place. And Peter said, uh, as we asked him, we said, Peter, what should we look forward to as Christian leaders? And um, as we look at today's theme... Uh, our last week in Haggai, it's the promise of the kingdom. You know, what's the promise, Peter? What should we look forward to? And this is basically what he said. He said, never forget that God is perfecting you through that which you suffer. Mm. 
Well, thanks for that, Pete. You know, we were thinking of maybe free tickets to the AFL Grand Final or, you know, something that... <laughs> but I'll say it again, never forget, God is making all things perfect through suffering. That was his promise and his reassuring word. He went on to say that as we experience, you know, our own foolishness, he's become acutely aware of his own foolishness and the foolishness of others around us, disappointments, ineffective systems and structures that cause us to struggle and suffer and hurt and then others get hurt and we're sorry about that. In other words, it's this fall short sort of sin place we seem to live. He said this is where God is at work offering himself to us offering himself to us in this journey of his work of perfecting us through that which we suffer with him. Oh, deep mystery. Deep mystery. He said, God's saying, come to me. Uh, a number of times throughout the week when I was at things, I'd see Peter over in a corner with some young, young aspiring leader and the number of times I saw his lips go, you must learn to trust God. That's what we don't want to hear, isn't it? Oh. But actually we must learn to trust God. And we'll see this unfold in Haggai this morning it was from a suffering place that God's love was perfectly revealed and our lives were cleansed and forgiven and reunited from him Peter said never forget that when it is as hard as it can be God's love is as real and active as it can be so today's concluding prophetic word from Haggai feeds into this eternal flow of timeless truth that was revealed on the 18th of December, 520 BC. The 18th of December, 520 BC. Now, Peter spoke last week about a prophetic word given by Haggai. The prophetic word that Peter spoke about is, was given by Haggai on the same day as the prophetic word that I will speak about today. Two words, one day, 18th of December, 520 AD. BC, thank you, because we know that it's really the New Testament that will save our kids, not the Old Testament. Anyway, so quick bit of context. The, the Jews, the returned Jews, are standing on this flat area uh, where the temple will be built. Uh, they've set up an altar to worship there, and around them is rubble, piles of stones, endless tasks, a sort of a perfect place to reflect on your failure and your disappointment, and endless work. It just looks like a big pile of suffering. 
And last time I spoke, you might remember, Haggai prophesied to the elders of the community who were looking at that and starting to grumble and murmur and mumble about it. But it looks like a big pile of suffering reflecting all their past failures. So last week, Haggai's first prophecy last week in this two prophecy section could be summarised the way Peter summarised it. It was that God will always make a way and that dirty things tend to make clean things dirty. Say that again. Dirty things, if you have something dirty and you stick it in with a pile of clean things, it tends to make the clean things dirty. And then last week Haggai went on and he said, if you put a clean thing in your dirty things, it tends not, it will not, it absolutely won't, make the dirty things clean. But we discovered last week that there was a prophetic promise emerging. And in verse 15, this was the declaration. Now consider what will come to pass from this day on, Haggai said to the people. So a new thing is beginning today. In verse 19 of chapter 2, God declares, I will bless you. I will bring you my peace and my success. So what is this blessing? I will bless you. A day is coming when there will be a clean one who will come who can actually make dirty things clean once and for all, forever. Then Haggai turns to Zerubbabel. Good name that. Name your kid that. He'll really love you for it. Zerubbabel. He then turns to Zerubbabel, the governor, and says, it's not you or them who can do anything to make dirty things clean. Zerubbabel, you can't do it. Zerubbabel, who are you anyway? Now, it's quite fun looking at Zerubbabel's lineage because basically we don't really know where he came from, so they have some guesses and I won't go into it. But his lineage is vague, lineage, I should say, is vague at, at best. He works for the Persians. He's a local governor. He doesn't even get a mention when the temple ultimately gets completed and he disappears. In other words, he's just like me and most of you. He comes, maybe he serves for a while, and then he disappears, just like me and maybe you. At best, he's an inheritor of a cast-off line that seems rejected by God. Yet Haggai chooses to speak to Zerubbabel with this massive declaration of God. And he says two things. I will shake the heavens and the earth, in verse 21. Now, when you look at that phraseology, I will shake, the other place this phraseology appears, apart from Haggai, 
is in, in, in the Genesis piece around Sodom and Gomorrah. God would come and shake Sodom and Gomorrah and destroy it. It was filthy and unclean and he would destroy it and send Lot off to build basically a whole new people who would be his chosen people, his, dare I say, clean people. That's where this image uh, is otherwise found, this shaking of the earth. And the other thing is the earthly kingdoms. So that's the first thing. The second thing is the earthly kingdoms. And we discover of the earthly kingdoms that God will overthrow them twice and destroy their strength. So we get cleaning the filth and it's not about earthly kingdoms being the way of God. So I just want to finish this morning with four promises. Bang, 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 bang. That won't take long, don't worry. Four promises that capture the way of God and where we fit in to this prophetic word from Haggai to Zerubbabel on this busted up old mountain in the middle of Palestine. The first promise is that God is sovereign. That means he's the Lord over all things. Nothing happens that is terrifying or shocking or overwhelming to him. So in this uh, prophetic word, uh, who's, who's the worker? Again and again and again, it's I will, I will. So it's God. God is the one who does the work. When? When will it happen? When God is ready. That's when it will happen. Through whom will it happen? Anyone he chooses. So the promise is that God is sovereign and Lord. It will happen at his hand when he's ready through anyone he's chosen. That's the first promise. The second promise is that we ought not despise the day of little, tiny, insignificant things. God does not despise the day of small things. I don't know about you, I love to put the emphasis on big things. And this refers to the earthly kingdoms. You know, look at the earthly, let's look at the earthly kingdoms. Conglomerates, magnates, you know, things like the West Coast Eagles supporter base, you know, massive things that we like to fix our eyes on. But here's God in the presence of an obscure governor on a building site amidst piles of rubble in a far-flung colony declaring this person, this time, this place pinpoints the centre of the whole created order. Bing! And none of us would give it a second glance. Don't despise the day of small things. Maybe what's happening in this little church at the uttermost end of the earth this morning is way more important than what's happening in the UN. Maybe, just maybe. Because who, God, when, when he's ready, through whom, 
anyone he chooses. His promise, not mine. Promise three. Have you the ring? Have a look at the passage. God places something on Zerubbabel's finger. Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel's finger. Do you remember? It's a ring. It's a signet ring. What does a signet ring signify? Let's go back a bit. It's 90 years earlier. Okay, so off the mountain. 90 years back, there's a prophet prophesying. He's known as the weeping prophet. And he's the prophet that I call the look, oh, look out. Here he comes again, prophet. His name's Jeremiah. Jeremiah. Uh-oh, it's Jeremiah. You know, you would cross the street. Here comes Jeremiah. Okay. They haven't even gone into exile yet. This is before this period of exile. Remember, they went to Babylon, then the Persians took over, and then the Persians let them come back. They haven't even gone into exile where they stayed for 70 years. They haven't even gone. Jeremiah said to the last king of Judah, who was yet another piece of work, who didn't follow or trust God, who did, quote, evil in the eyes of the Lord. We never really get to hear what this king's evil particularly was, but his name was Jehoachin. Jehoachin. He was very young. He was still a teenager when he became king. But this is what Jeremiah said. Even if you, Jehoachin, were a signet ring on my right hand, I would still pull you off and cast you away. So God is declaring that that which authorises, that's what the signet ring did, solemnises, that's what the signet ring did, carries the authority of the one who gave it, that's what the signet ring did, and denotes ownership of these two parties, what he says is what he says. God is declaring through Jehoiakim that it's off. But God has returned the ring of power and authority to who? To Zerubbabel. He's returned everything to this vassal governor. I will bless you and favour you with my authority, says God, and my name. It's extraordinary. So Zerubbabel was blessed to complete the temple and enthrone God's presence in Jerusalem, on the Temple Mount, on what they call Mount Zion. That's where Jerusalem's built. So that's what Zerubbabel was blessed to do. But what about the King of Kings? What about Jesus? What was his signet ring? He was the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, but he was also the suffering servant, wasn't he? What was his signet ring? What would establish Jesus as Saviour and as Lord? Remember, king and suffering servant, enthroned and crowned king of kings and lord of lords. Do you remember when he was enthroned and crowned? At his trial. 
with a signet ring of thorns and a throne of a cross. Peter says you will be perfected through that which you suffer, just like the Messiah was who came to seek and save that which was lost. Christ was and is king, and as king, his choice was to access death and hell on our behalf and where necessary to authorise life for us in his name. So his suffering both enthroned him and does the work of making unclean things clean. So effectively, here's Zerubbabel's prophecy coming true in Christ. So now Jesus has declared all things his, his by right, but what Jesus does is he gives us all things by adoption. His death and resurrection includes us. We now have all things. We now have him. We now wear the signet ring of the Father. Each one of you bears the same grace and mercy of God and carries the same authority of God. Final point, final promise. You are God's temple. Go back, primary school, as Peter said, Old Testament. Tabernacle, the tent that they would carry with them. They'd fold it up and pack it up, and when the nation moved in the wilderness, they'd put it back up again. And, and, and the idea of the tabernacle was it's God's presence dwelling amongst them. It was a visible presence of God as a pilgrim people. So that was the tabernacle. Then Solomon built a temple... And the promise was that God would give them land, their own land, and their God would dwell with them forever. So we've got God's presence in the tabernacle, and then we've got God's place in Canaan, in Israel, in Palestine. It's all the same place in Solomon's temple. And then with Zerubbabel's temple, you get God's return. They've been cast off. And God says, I will return to you. That's Zerubbabel's temple. But God would also return as a Messiah and a saviour, wouldn't he? Jesus in Jerusalem, as God's saviour, declares what? Destroy the temple and I'll rebuild it. He's talking about the spiritual temple of his body, his death, his resurrection... For us. So the temple is no longer a building. It's a dwelling place in the Messiah of God for us. But he must suffer. He must suffer to bring us into that relationship with him. And then Jesus declares that you, you and me, you who receive me, he declares, you who believe in my name, to you I will give authority, power, to become my children by adoption. We are included into his family. And as, in, and as children, Paul goes on to declare in Corinthians, you children are now the temple. Look, 
tabernacle, Solomon, Zerubbabel, Jesus himself, then Jesus' work makes us, you are the temple. What of? Clean things. Which clean thing? The Holy Spirit. You are now essentially the holy of holies for God to dwell on earth. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit who dwells within you that you have received from God. You're no longer your own. You're now a nation or a priesthood of all believers carrying the gift of God, the holy thing of God. You're no longer your own. You've been purchased with a price. So get out there and live as holy things in the world. It's interesting to think, isn't it, that we're so loved by God, so cleansed by God through Jesus, that we're now fit to be the temple where God sees fit to, to dwell. It's a couple of months ago. That's the Dome of the Rock Mosque built on the same site as Zerubbabel and Solomon's temple and then later Herod's rebuild. Herod's temple was a rebuild of Zerubbabel's temple. That's the spot. Very important place. But here are three living temples. Here are three living temples. You see, we now no longer need a temple of stone and wood and gilt and gold and stuff. We are the temple. We don't need that temple anymore. Because in Christ, the cleansing is such that we're declared fit to house the holiest things. And this isn't because of ourselves. It's a free gift of God. Not because of our works. It's a beautiful painting by Rembrandt that picks up the story of the prodigal son. And I suppose, as I was thinking about this, what it declares to us as we think of the promises of God who's sovereign and Lord, the promise of God who doesn't despise small things, the promise of God who has now declared that we hold his signet ring with all its abundant authority, power, both his kingship and his suffering, as we hold the promise that we are God's temple, his ambassadors, so God makes his appeal to the world through us now. As we think about all those things and we think about uh, the prodigal in that picture, even if you're worshipping today as, as though on a pile of rubble, overwhelmed by past disappointments uh, and a bleak future. The father calls you daughter. He calls you son today. Even if that's you and that's me, it's not by might or power of our own. It's by faith here and now, learning to trust God. We belong to God Dirty things have been made clean. We are that temple. God dwells in us. And he's shaken the principalities and powers and structures and declared his victory over them. 
and he places the ring on your finger and says, access all areas on his behalf. And he places sandals on our feet, a robe on our skinny shoulders, the attire of princes, the sandals denoting the run of the house, and kill the calf for that which was lost has been found. Because the one who makes unthings clean has reinstated us because he can. So what can we do? Well, I don't know about you, I just thought we can fall silent, really. And we can contemplate such welcome and such love. And we can listen and obey his voice of wisdom. And in our day of small things, Lord, we come into your presence. Into your presence we come. Not by the deeds we have done, but by grace and by grace alone to receive again the infinite vastness of your love. Lord, continue to teach us to learn from that which we struggle and suffer through, to listen and to obey your voice of wisdom in the power of the Holy Spirit. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.